Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Michael Hoke, and today I'm joined by Dr. Abraham Nussbaum, a physician and writer who, with his highly praised book, The Finest Traditions of My Calling, hopes to change the medical profession into something a bit more human. Abraham, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. So in your book, uh, there's an interesting story about your first patient, Gloria, which, as you mentioned, isn't her real name. Can you tell me a little bit about Gloria and why that experience was so important to you? You know, I think, Michael, for some people, they had a lot of experiences with medicine before they went to medical school. And I, for better or for worse, did not. And one of the interesting things about medical school is whether you have a lot of experience or you are inexperienced, you get to act like a physician from a very early age as a, as a medical student. So Gloria is a patient that I met, oh, probably four weeks uh, into my medical school career. By that point, I basically was learning some very basic anatomy and physiology, but was allowed to shadow an internal medicine doctor in rural North Carolina as he saw his patients. And uh, it was a kind of training where you really got to go and do doctorly sorts of things with patients. Um, and Gloria was a patient that of his practice who was uh, admitted to the ER, which um, was right next to his clinic and unfortunately died. And I was asked to represent the doctor uh, in her care in the emergency room. And so is that, uh, is that a usual practice for something like that where a new sort of new physician coming out would, would end up with a patient in a situation like that? It's fairly common, actually, in an apprenticeship model for physicians to be thrown into the action and to participate in the care. I want to be clear in Gloria's case, you know, she was cared for by the emergency room physicians and nurses, so it's not as if I was called to the the hospital to assume her care. It's that I was called to the hospital to represent her longstanding physician, who I had met a day or two before. Um, And it is not uncommon in medical training for uh, students, including medical students and nursing students and other kinds of health professional students, to assume those kinds of roles uh, probably well before they have the training to do so. There's an old saying in medical school, see one, uh, do one, teach one. And the idea is is that you see something once, and then you do it, and then you teach it to somebody else. Right. Okay. And then um, after she passed away, you had an encounter with her son, correct? Yeah. So when her care was really done by the physicians and the nurses in the emergency room, but when her son arrived on the scene, they asked the nurses at the emergency room asked me to go uh, meet with his son and to tell him that his mother had died. Uh, and it was uh, kind of amazing to think about, right, that you would ask a young person. I was probably, I think, 23 or 24 years old um, and had never told somebody before that somebody had died and certainly not somebody um, that I was supposed to be some kind of medical professional with. So I was asked to meet with the young man and tell him that his mother had died. And as I discussed in the book, I had the horrifying realization that I didn't know his mother's name. Um, And he, of course, knew his mother's name and knew so much more about her. Um, And it was shocking the differences in which we knew somebody, right, and how we were asked to think about this person that we were discussing. 
And what sort of impact does that have on you as a, you know, as fresh out of out of medical school and this is sort of your first experience? Is that something that you, you know, find yourself reflecting on often even now or what, you know, how does that affect you as you go forward through your career? Yeah, I think for me, part of what I learned in that moment, right, is that one way to think about what physicians get to do, what what society grants us the privilege to do, is we get to participate in things that would be assaultive in other contexts. We get to ask intimate questions of people. We get to perform intimate procedures. Um, And in the context of a medical relationship, they're allowed because we're pursuing health. Um, But we often forget that even though they are designed for somebody's health, they are still these invasive procedures, these intimate questions. And we ought to be uh, thoughtful about when we do it and why and who we allow to do it. So I have uh, tried to be very different in my own experiences and attending physician about when I ask students to participate in cases like Gloria's, when I ask students to break news to a family. Uh, so in my line of work, for example, telling a family that a young uh, member of the family has schizophrenia is not something I would turn over to a student to do. Mm-hmm. It's something that I would want to support them and help them through doing rather than kind of throw them into that conversation. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, I'm sure. I'm sure it's intimidating uh, as well for the for probably even for the seasoned physician, but let alone for one, uh, you know, sort of just starting out. I'm sure it's a very intimidating uh, thing to start to ask these sort of probing questions and have to get into very personal details or tell somebody that somebody they know much better than you has uh, has passed away or has a terminal disease or something of that sort. It, it can be intimidating, but honestly, part of what happens is that it becomes a job, right? You mm-hmm. get used to it. Mm-hmm. You get accustomed to it. You get accustomed to seeing things other people don't see, having conversations other people don't have, having interactions with people that are really odd outside of the medical encounter. Um, <laughs> I mean, actually, you get used to it. Uh, and that's part of what leads to a lot of medical writing has a lot of dark humor, right? <laughs> right. Uh, because you, you get used to these things that other people don't. Um, we're accustomed to watching people break in different ways. It's funny, though, because, you know, there is this there's this sort of I don't want to call it a trend because I don't think it's new, but medical shows and things like that are always on TV. They're always very popular. And I wonder, you know, if there's something to that where we ourselves as patients, not necessarily physicians, use these as a way to maybe get used to it a bit ourselves or, you know, see that kind of <laughs> background of, of a, a an industry or a profession we don't understand that well. Yes, I think that's the case. Um, and certainly those shows then create expectations for what um, people expect out of medical care. There's a famous study from a couple years ago that looked at the medical drama ER, mm-hmm. and it looked at how often people survived resuscitations mm-hmm. in the context of the show. And it showed that they were much, much more likely to survive a, a CPR or, or an ACLS situation, a code, uh, than people do in real life, mm-hmm. and it affects what people expect. People expect um, a version of what they see on television. So most of us physicians aren't nearly as good looking. <laughs> uh, most of us don't have as interesting sex lives, and unfortunately, um, our treatments aren't always as effective or as dramatic as they seem on television. Uh, but yes, I, I do think that those kinds of dramas, um, along with medical dramas on, uh, you know, on cinema and in fiction Mm -hmm. do sort of uh, speak to our fascination with the medical encounter 
and with the power of medicine to narrate what it means to be alive and to have a body and to be ill. Mm -hmm. You know, going back to that sort of unrealistic expectations, funny enough, I, I remember when the the sitcom Scrubs was on the air. I remember hearing or reading an interview with a doctor who said that Scrubs was the most accurate uh, uh, medical show that he'd ever seen on TV because, you know, they were residents and they were spending all this time in the hospital and they didn't have time to get into these complicated love triangles and all these other things. He said, you don't have time for that. You're, you're either sleeping or you're at the hospital and probably doing both at the same time. Um, and I always thought that was kind of funny that a that a comedy had a more accurate uh, <laughs> representation of what it is to be a resident in this case than maybe a drama. Yeah, you know, a lot of this happens to be what time you grow up. And for me, ER was the show that was really popular before I went to medical school. Mm -hmm. And Scrubs was the show that was popular when I was in med school and residency. And uh, ER is hard to watch after you become a physician because it is so unrealistic. <laughs> right. It's engaging. I mean, George Clooney's still an attractive guy in reruns. Um, but Scrubs was the one that people in my generation of medical training liked because mm -hmm. it did speak to what we saw um, on a certain level and to what we experienced and, and the ways that things would happen and you didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, scrubs, scrubs would sort of have these moments where they would almost disassociate into unreal moments. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that captured well sort of what it could be like during residency when you'd been working for hours on end and had one ill patient after another, and they kind of all just put you into this odd state. And I think Scrubs did a good job at capturing that. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to switch gears a little bit. I could talk about TV all day, but um, can you tell me um, how, you know, I know that you uh, had played a, a game of basketball once with a patient, and um, that game sort of set up for you what was wrong with the medical profession. I wonder if you would um, explain a little bit about that story to me. Yeah, you know, we talked about how doing what physicians do, seeing what we see, asking the questions we do, relating to people in these very different ways, changes your kind of perception of the world. And it starts to mess with it in certain respects. You know, it kind of bleeds over from one thing into the other. And I had the good fortune to go to medical school at the University of North Carolina, which is a rabid basketball uh, facility. <laughs> and it's, it's, we would play basketball uh, throughout the first years of medical school in what was called Woolen Gym. And they would have 16 courts, and you would play, uh, you know, you'd start on one court, and if you won, you'd go to the next court. And if you lost, you had to sit on the sidelines. It was a place that people were crazy about basketball. Uh, now, they were so crazy about basketball that within the academic medical center itself, there's actually uh, a basketball court. Um, it's since been closed, but there was one right in the middle of the hospital. And when I was a third-year med student, you know, you would rotate through different rotations. And the rotations were really designed around which part of somebody's organ, which, which organ system was uh, ailing, right? And so when I was on the pediatric neurology uh, service, I was asked to see this young man who was from rural North Carolina who'd come in who'd had seizures. And his community physician had treated him with uh, anti-epileptics, and they, he didn't get better. He continued to have seizures with physical activity, so they sent him down to Chapel Hill to be evaluated. So we admitted him. We hooked him up to an EEG machine, which is a way to measure uh, seizure activity, and we observed him, and he had no seizures. So we went back and talked to him some more, and the seizures, he told us, occurred with physical activity. 
So they brought out a recumbent bicycle and monitored him on an EEG, and he again, he huffed, he puffed, and no seizures. So we went back to him the next day and asked again, you know, exactly what are you doing when these seizures occur? And he kind of sheepily confessed that the seizures happened only during gym class <laughs> and only when it was time to play basketball. Um, so this was Chapel Hill. So the uh, attending physician told me to say, leave his EEG leads on and take him with the physical therapist, roll him down in a wheelchair uh, to the gym. And when the three of you arrive, he says, you know, play basketball with him until he has a seizure. Then wheel him back upstairs, hook him up to the leads, and we can figure out where the seizure is coming from. And, you know, I rolled the kid downstairs, and I was worried because most kids born in North Carolina are much better basketball players than kids <laughs> from Colorado. And I hadn't played in months. You know, I'd been a third-year med student, kind of gotten out of shape, and I feared this kid would embarrass me. And I kind of feared that I would embarrass my attending, right, because he wanted me to induce a seizure. So we got to the court, and I was determined to, to play the kid hard. I took off my tie, you know, I rolled up my sleeves, and I just – played. I, I locked into my stance. I blocked his shots. Every time he misplaced a dribble, I stole it. On offense, I turned steals into layups. And then after I started making my layups, I started stepping back, crossing them over, knocking down 10-footers. And then finally, I stopped and I hit a three-pointer and just, it went beautifully. And I realized I was playing just the absolute best game of my life. <laughs> and I ran down the court and then as I did, I was, I was thrilled. I was playing so well. Uh, and then I turned and I saw the kid I was playing against. And I realized he was half my age, and he was standing still at the half court, and these EEG leads were hanging slack from his body. He, he looked a little bit like the cut strings of a puppet, these leads hanging off of him. And he looked at me and he says, I'm tired. I'll, I'll seize if we keep playing. And I just realized all of a sudden that I was attempting to fulfill my medical assignment but I was the one who'd become a jerk, right? <laughs> he, he was, his seizures were really a declaration that he was unable to play. Mm -hmm. He'd kind of learned that it was better to be sick than to be shown up on the basketball court. And we realized this in that moment, and we wheeled him back upstairs, and we took the EEG leads off, and we started talking. And by the end of the day, we diagnosed him with non-epileptic seizures, sent him home with an exercise regimen, and an appointment to see a child psychiatrist. And he was gone. That's often what happens is people kind of come into your life for this intense moment and then they're out of it. And I was left with this question of like why I had effectively tortured this kid uh, in order to satisfy my attending physician and what I was hoping to get out of it. And I felt like that was one of those moments. And there were many during medical training when you forget who you are and who you are with other people. And with that kid, I I perceived him as an opponent, but he was really a patient. He was an adolescent who was struggling to figure out uh, how to fit in socially, right? And I forgotten that. Um, and that was one of those moments in medical school and in medical training where I realized that we have to think carefully about who we are with other people, how we perceive them, how we perceive ourselves, and, and kind of inaugurated thinking for me about what it means to be ill, to seek medical care, and to be somebody who provides medical care and, and, and how we relate to other people in that moment. Hmm. So do you still do you still play basketball or is that something that you you don't I do. At? I play yeah. the old man version of pickup <laughs> basketball. It's decidedly earthbound. Um, <laughs> now I coach my son's uh, team. Okay. But 
yeah, he is thrilled to tell you that he's a much better basketball player than I am. <laughs> I've started him early. <laughs> so uh, speaking of, you know, your patient's point of view, um, I think we often wonder as patients, and, and, you know, I'm not a physician, obviously, but I am a patient from time to time, um, what can I do as a patient uh, to make my time with my doctor work better for both of us? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, first of all, you say that you're not a physician, right? Mm -hmm. Most people aren't. And even physicians, all of us sooner or later become a patient. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that's worth remembering. It's our common future. Um, So I would say a couple of things. It depends a lot on what kind of uh, physician you're going to and for what kind of encounter. Um, I think there are times when it's helpful to simply receive care. And those would be in emergency situations, true trauma right? Mm -hmm. You're really better off just doing your best. Um, But for most kinds of medical care today, it's for chronic conditions. And I have found it helpful when thinking about delivering medical care or receiving medical care in my own life to make a distinction between trusting physicians and hoping in them. And what I mean by that is, is that I think it's reasonable to trust a physician based on his or her abilities, education, experience, their scope of knowledge, but not to hope in them. And I, and I think, to me, hoping in a physician means the hope that they can fix things, that they can solve the big dilemmas of life. Um, and I think we make a mistake when we expand the scope of medicine beyond health uh, into these broader categories. And, and different ways that you see that is, for example, we sometimes have patients who, who ask us to save somebody who Uh, the life of somebody who can't be saved, Mm -hmm. or I'll have patients who will ask me to um, cure them of schizophrenia. And of course, I wish that I could, um, Mm -hmm. but I don't have that ability, and I try to be worthy of people's trust, but not to encourage them to have hopes that are um, unreasonable. Uh, And so in the book, I talk, for example, about a woman um, that I was privileged to see for a course of psychotherapy, and Uh, she was an older woman and she was beginning to experience dementia. And I talk about how she wanted me to cure her of her dementia and how that to me was an example of hoping, hoping that somehow I could do something that I, that I can't achieve, that no Mm -hmm. physician can achieve. Um, But that I couldn't offer her that, but I could be somebody that she could trust. And so if I was a person seeking a physician, I would want somebody that I could trust somebody who could tell me the truth, um, somebody who I could confide in, uh, somebody who'd be worthy of being confiding in, um, and somebody who would be humble about the abilities and limits of medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, nowadays there, uh, there are some factors that, you know, didn't even exist uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, with patients, you know, going on the internet, and I'm guilty of doing this from time to time as well. Uh, you know, you go to WebMD, you you look up your symptoms, and and inevitably, all these symptoms point to something very serious, which is probably not the case. Um, what what do you say to patients who come in and have sort of self-diagnosed themselves, or sort have this? you know, I have cancer when it's probably just, you know, a stomach ache or something. How, how do you deal with these new sort of uh, sources of information that don't necessarily have 
the expertise of you know a physician's filter behind them. You mentioned earlier that people love medical dramas, right? <laughs> right. And I think that, and also the rise of sort of internet health databases, speak to the power that people give to medicine for an explanation for their distress. Mm-hmm. We look uh, for uh, a medical explanation of things. And the interesting thing to me about all of that is the way that it repeats an experience that most medical students have had. It is very common for medical students to believe that they have the conditions that they're hearing about in lectures. Mm -hmm. So you'll have medical students who will become convinced they have tuberculosis, even Mm -hmm. though they have none of the actual risk factors of being exposed to tuberculosis, or they'll convince themselves they have Cushing syndrome because they just went to a lecture for it. Part of what's interesting is that there is... um, What the Internet does really well is it lists things, Mm -hmm. and it provides a lot of knowledge. What the Internet doesn't provide is wisdom, and that's part of what first-year med students suffer from. They learn a ton, and they hear these lectures about tuberculosis or Cushing syndrome, but they don't have the wisdom to know when some of the symptoms on those lists don't add up to the full disease. And what I mean by that is you can read those lists on the Internet, And you have some of them, but most of them include things that are very nonspecific. So feeling fatigued, right? Feeling sleepy in comparison, Mm -hmm. feeling sad sometimes, feeling weak. All of these things are very nonspecific. So part of what a good physician or other health practitioner can do is have the wisdom to move beyond just a list of symptoms and signs, uh, but organize them into a compelling explanation for what's actually going on. And a good physician or practitioner would be able to say to you uh, and offer you reassurance that some of those things really aren't um, a sign of a true medical illness, um, but would be able to tell you when they were. So what is the, you know, if I'm going to my doctor, I think there's something wrong with me, for example. What is the the appropriate way to approach that? Is it I sort of track my symptoms? Because I think you know, sometimes I worry, and I think other people do as well, I'm not giving you a symptom that may be attached to what I, th- you know, what I am trying to tell you about. So what, what sort of things should we do? Is there, is there too much? Am I going to give my, my physician information overload if I start rattling off this list of ailments? Or is it better to do that so that I can make sure that they have the whole picture? What, what's the best approach for that? Yeah, I guess I would say that as a physician, I'm always thrilled when somebody's concerned about their own health, right? Because mm-hmm. that's, that's a good place to start. Somebody wants some change, and that's a great place to start. And I am thrilled when somebody cares enough about themselves to think through those things and to make lists of what's going on. I guess from my perspective, I most appreciate it when somebody comes in with a concern for their health, a list of what's going on, but not to have... Um, gone to the trouble of trying to make a diagnosis or suggesting a treatment. Because mm-hmm. I think you, no one knows your body as well as you, and that's the part that you're the expert on. But part of what being a physician is, is helping you interpret those things. And I think where people make a mistake is that they come to a physician sometimes, not just with a list of what's going on, but with a list of the diagnoses they believe they have and the treatments they have. And and frankly, part of that's encouraged by um, the American advertising system. We're one of only two countries in the world that allows direct-to-consumer advertising by pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. And they encourage people to say, not only do you have some of these nonspecific things, 
they have a, it directly correlates with a diagnosis and with a treatment that you should go ask your doctor about. And oftentimes people are encouraged to ask about a treatment for one, a disease they don't have, and two, it's, it's often not the best treatment even if they did have the disease. So I, I'm thrilled when somebody comes to me with a list of concerns and ailments and, and ideally um, a sense of when they began, what made them worse, what made them better. But I'm a little um, uh, less thrilled when somebody comes in and tells me what the diagnosis is. I think it's reasonable to say, I wonder if I have this diagnosis. I wonder if it's cancer or tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. But it's a little presumptuous to say, I know I do because I read about it on the Internet. Or saw it on House, for example. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be exciting. But House is mostly obscure illnesses, right? <laughs> right. Um, that would be exciting if you had a house-like illness. but <laughs> Sarcoidosis or something that it always yeah, seems sure. to be. Um, speaking of, you know, America being one of two countries that has direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals, have you uh, seen um, any changes for the way your job works since, you know, recent legislation, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, has gone into effect. How has that changed your your job? Well, so I am privileged to practice at an academic safety net hospital, mm-hmm. um, which means that we, our social mission is to care for the disadvantaged. We are happy to care for anybody um, in the city and county of Denver, but it's our special mission to care for people who would otherwise not receive care. The Affordable Care Act has problems but I will say I am also fortunate to live in a state that accepted the Medicaid expansion. And concretely, that's meant that in Denver County, we have very few people um, who were previously uninsured who, who don't now at least have Medicaid. The great exception is um, people who are in the United States who are not citizens, and, and they still struggle mightily to receive medical care. Um, but for most of the disadvantaged and poor of Denver, they now at least qualify for Medicaid. And so we've seen examples of uh, tens of thousands of patients who um, the doors of medicine have been closed and are now open to them uh, thanks to the Affordable Care Act and the Medicaid expansion. Um, So that's been a gigantic change for us, um, and I'm grateful for it. As a psychiatrist, the the enforcement of the Mental Health Parity Act has also meant that a lot more people have mental health coverage than they had before. Um, And so those aspects of the Affordable Care Act are to me, um, really uh, advances. Are you hopeful for the future of medicine? Uh, You know, I think people, uh, as long as there are people on this planet, we will fall ill um, and need people to provide care for us. And I think one of the great things about being a physician is is that it's it's a calling, and you have an opportunity to provide care for another person, and you get to serve other people, um, and you get to have a chance at meaningful work. And there's not a lot of professions that do that today. There are times that I feel pretty dark about the profession, um, but most of those times are uh, various aspects of our culture and our economy. A good friend of mine says that um, every society gets the medicine it deserves, and our society favors technological innovations and solutions to problems that are often human um, and often favors uh, large industrial solutions rather than than more cultural solutions. And those parts of uh, medicine um, deeply worry me, but that's also part and parcel of living uh, in the time and the place that we do, and there are still uh, tremendous opportunities uh, to care for others 
um, and to have a, a life of meaningful service within medicine. So it's still a great privilege to be a physician. Abraham, thank you so much for joining me today. Michael, I appreciate the opportunity. The book is The Finest Traditions of My Calling, One Physician's Search for the Renewal of Medicine. It's available in bookstores now. And that does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. Talk to you next time.